Welcome to your area. We're here with Kevin McGinnis today. Kevin um, is the president and CEO of the Keystone Community Corporation, spending a lot of time right now getting the Keystone Innovation District off the, gr- off the ground, which we're going to talk uh, about in a minute. Kevin has uh, had a long career at Sprint with lots of experience in emerging markets, working closely with VCs in Silicon Valley. Uh, he, uh, some of his other key roles, VP of product, founder of the Sprint Accelerator, uh, CEO at Pinsight, um, and he's uh, led a lot of different community roles over time with the, the KC Tech Council. He was the board chair there for three years, Digital Sandbox, Big Chamber Five uh, Committee, uh, and uh, uh, he's also a mentor and uh, angel investor to a number of, of startups in Kansas City. Um, but I, w- I really want to start with you know with you know being in in the, the tech world in Kansas City for so many years, both with the behemoth of Sprint as well as working with small startups in the tech world, uh, and also working you know in other cities across the country like Boston. Um, you see the differences in the tech ecosystems in St. Louis, at Cortex, Boston. Is, are there any differences in Kansas City versus these other cities? Yeah, Tim. Thanks. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, there definitely is differences, and, and those oftentimes reflect a larger cultural like underpinning in the market itself. And I would say when you think about the Kansas City entrepreneurial ecosystem or tech ecosystem, you know, it's very relationship driven. Um, it, it's very much community driven, and uh, it probably you don't have the um, hardcore grind that you might have on you know coasts, and I don't mean that in a in a negative way as much as um, it, it's kind of that midwestern you know help people out you know, uh, still a lot of hard work, still kind of the midwestern work culture, but not the a minute for me, which is what you see in a lot more successful entrepreneurs. It's not maybe the me and the the greed, but it's the grind and the focus. Um, those would I, I say are the biggest differences. I, I would also say there is definitely on the venture side, there is definitely a difference in um, the investment philosophy and the philosophy of the entrepreneurs who are going after that money that you don't see on the coasts. And I've I've always heard that it's 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 more difficult to raise money or attract VC money to Kansas City, um, or it has been in the past. Is that changing? It's changing. It's a long road. I think, you know, in the 2013, 2014 kind of time frame, you know, as Google Fiber was lighting up and as we were reemerging or reinventing kind of the entrepreneurial spirit of the city with the new class of entrepreneurs, it's been going on for a long time. But I think that was kind of the an inflection point for the new resurgence. There was a lot of conversation about that. And I think at the time there was an acknowledgement that it was a 20-year cycle to get city money to get, you know, the local family money, family office money to get them educated on the difference between some of the traditional investments, maybe commodity-based investments, real estate, things like that, versus what a venture investing cycle and what the expectations should be around that. And But I think we're getting there for sure. I want to let, – let's dig into the Keystone Innovation District. Sure. Um, because that's why we're here. <laughs> and uh, we'll get into location in a second, but it is on the 18th Street uh, uh, corridor mm-hmm. between East Crossroads and 18th and Vine, um, an area that's in the path of development. 
Um, but first I want to talk about – they're not – I mean if you don't – I mean there are a lot of people that don't know what an innovation district is. Uh, if you could tell us what an innovation district is and why Kansas City needs it. Sure. It's um, – so think of an innovation district. It's a purpose-built community and it's the opportunity to collect a group of institutions – um, industry clusters, startups and entrepreneurs, risk capital, and literally into one ecosystem that's uh, built around kind of placemaking principles. These are 18-hour mixed-use neighborhoods because you really want to create, we'll call them non-work collisions amongst like stakeholders. That's the value in these innovation districts is that proximity and those, we always hear that term collision in the startup world. Um, these neighborhoods, when they're done right, you see exponential outcomes in the innovation economy within a region. Um, Kansas City, so why does Kansas City need one? Um, Kansas City lacks that place right now. When you look at our peer cities, um, one, we're geographically spread out. It's just a huge amount of real estate to cover. And when you look at our, we'll call them innovation assets, whether it's our universities or you know, our leading tech companies, they're barely spread out across the metro geography. So the likelihood of those collisions isn't as great. We also lack an R1 research institution in the metro. So you kind of have to get them together and collaborate on creating the research impact that you can see in an innovation economy, a successful innovation economy. Um, we don't have that place like our peer cities do. We don't have that place if uh, external you know, entity like a, a Techstars when they came to town. Um, it was there was a lot of discussion about wh where would we go because we feel like we need to be in Johnson County, we feel like we need to be downtown, we feel like we need to be in least some like we feel like we need to cover a lot of geography, and it's more expensive for us to cover Kansas City. If there was a place where you could get access to all of these things at one time, it would be much easier, more efficient for us to be in that market. So innovation, um, as I understand it. You, you need to have the, the catalyst for innovation is having a diversity of skill sets, if you will, or, you know, walks of life, interests, different technologies, people working on different things that might find commonality in this other technology that this other company might be working on. Um, what are what are those key components that you need to have to foster innovation? I think people oftentimes confuse innovation and invention. And a lot of people think that innovation is about new things all the time. Oftentimes it's exactly what you just described. The outcome of those diverse things that come together is um, most innovation comes from the reuse of existing things in new ways. It's uh, just another word for creativity, right? Um, in, in a lot of ways, curiosity is what drives it. Problems. I mean, if you if you can expose problems to creative groups, they come up with innovative solutions to those. Um, but again, oftentimes it's somebody that's working in an industry that, it, like, they're blocking and tackling solution. The thing that's core to what they do. When somebody from another industry presents a problem, they just look at it and go, "Well, why don't you use our thing to solve that?" Well. If you don't create those collisions for those people to have that conversation, um, you don't see that they, they don't usually interact on a daily basis. So they're not thinking about my solution works for your problem. Um, you don't see those types of conversations happen very often. And where does uh, academia come into this? Yeah, academia plays an important role in a, in a couple different ways. The first one is you know research 
the role of these research institutions is really to be thinking about the future. It is really, um, they're kind of, they're testing, experimenting, throwing out a hypothesis and, and, and doing a lot of uh, testing around that um, to see if it holds. And so a lot of times in what we would consider innovation centers, they typically uh, over-index in the amount of paid research and applied research that you see in those markets. So that's, I think, at the core what these institutions represent. But I think a lot of people forget the underlying cultural aspects of what a university is. You have a force function of change every year. And by that, you have a graduating class that leaves and you have a freshman class that comes in. So every year you're seeing 25% out, or well, depending on the graduating class, you're seeing a, a large percentage out and a large percentage of new thought. So just naturally, they're a place where you have, uh, you're testing, you know, kind of the limits and you're testing kind of the, the underlying thinking as a cultural center. That's what universities represent. But you can't forget uh, workforce. It's really all about workforce. They're, they're workforce engines. Um, they power, especially in a startup ecosystem, a lot of the workforce that comes into startups, maybe not founders, but a lot of the workforce that comes in are, are younger because the pay is sometimes less to start, but you're looking for the buyout, you know, on the long, on the backside. So you're willing to take more risk at that point in your career, those types of things. Um, so university centers, larger universities are tremendous workforce engines for a startup community. And the, you've just completed putting together your board. Yep. Um, and talk a little bit about how you created that board and, and, and you don't have to be specific at who's on the board if you don't want, but, but what was the thought in, uh, in building that board? So we have spent the last two plus years um, trying to learn from peer innovation districts around the country and trying to learn from, I mean, this isn't a new thing. It's new for Kansas City, um, but it's not a new thing. So we've um, brought in consultants who work in this space. Uh, we've looked at and talked to, like I said, our peers, founders, and operators of these districts and other places. And we've spent... Um, for the, those that are listening, what what are some of the the innovation districts that you you've looked at um, and, and like, where would be the closest innovation district to Kansas City? Yeah, I've folk, I, I've tried. Uh, great question, Tim. I've um, I've tried to get out to as many of them and experience them as possible. And you can instantly tell the good ones and the bad ones. You know, when you're there, vibrancy, diversity, you know, activity. Um, and so there's a handful of them that I would consider aspirational to the Kansas City market. I've probably been to about 15 to 20 of these innovation districts, and there's probably only 25 to 30 legitimate innovation districts in the United States right now. Um, ones that I really love, um, Technology Square in Atlanta, I think is, it's been transformational to the region, um, powered by Georgia Tech University. It's nice to have that kind of asset yep. in your metro. Um, downtown Durham, the American Tobacco Campus was the catalyst for the resurgence of Durham, North Carolina. And it's an amazing kind of grassroots organic story, which is really cool. Um, the Idea District in San Diego, I think, um, is aligned with a lot of our industry um, and also has some really cool kind of grassroots organic things that have happened. Um, Pittsburgh has uh, two or three small innovation districts that are kind of growing together and creating like this Uber thing around Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon which is really cool. Um, but then the one that's closest to us and, and kind of our peer you know, district and both competitive because it's in the same state, but also here because it's close and we can learn a lot from them and they've been very collaborative is Cortex, the Cortex community in St. Louis. Interesting. 
Um, so the, the plans are for Keystone to be on the 18th Street corridor um, between uh, 18th and Vine and East Crossroads. Mm -hmm. um, you can put this out, you know, in Olathe. You can put it out in Lenexa. Um, why is geography so important to where this innovation district is? Yeah, um, it's really so. So I'll I'll talk specifically about the 18th Street corridor and how we arrived at that, and then you know if we, if we want to get into the importance of place and the importance of you know why the programming drives it, we can talk about that. But the the 18th Street. So we looked at 12 different areas around the Kansas City region, um, and we took research from. Uh, Brookings Institute, which has done a lot of work on innovation districts and innovation economies, urban centers. We looked at MIT's research that they've done on, on uh, why innovation communities place matters in innovation communities. And then oddly enough, Virginia Tech uh, program, real estate program is that one of the top five real estate programs in the United States. They've aggregated about 100 years of placemaking research, agglomeration theory, you know, suburban business parks, university research parks, and now these urban centers. So we basically formed requirements, about 20 or 30 requirements of what made a successful location. And then we tried to benchmark these 12 areas. And when I say 12 areas, the Legends, the Honeywell campus down south, uh, you know, South Plaza, North Kansas City, um, and then some areas in downtown, some specific uh, area, uh, West Bottoms, East Village, and then this area. And when you looked at this area versus those others, it scored out about 25% higher than the second and third location. And we're looking at requirements like regional accessibility, local connectivity, walkability, uh, proximity to anchor you know, institutions or anchor districts. This was situated between three existing anchor districts that are extremely valuable. Uh, proximity to creative class. Those are all really important kind of things. But then you also have to look at the other side, risk of gentrification. You know, you have to score against what, what, what are the outcomes? This is a 10 to 20 year kind of journey what negative things can you create? And how can you minimize the impact of some of those things? Um, and then- Because the neighborhood has to want it. I mean, they have to be involved in this. You 100%. can't just exert yourself on the neighborhood, right? hundred percent. If I had one desire right now, I wish there were more of me so we could spend more time on community engagement. I mean, it, it, it's it's that important. And when you look at the good ones versus the bad ones, uh, when, and, and by that, I mean innovation districts, the good ones are the ones that focused on and were intentional about community and intentional about things like equity and inclusion. The bad ones are the ones where it was like, uh-oh, uh <laughs> we should have thought about this. Okay, let's create a program. Let's think of, let's do, you know, let's react to the negative things that we're seeing from the community. Um, so, yeah, those are all really important and really went into, you know, selecting this location, like all of those considerations did. So, you know, one of the things that you've taught me is that programming drives real estate and, um and it's really true. I mean, when you think about the, you know, the this a generic office building in some suburban office park that appeals to everybody, um, it's really hard to create the real value that you know from uniqueness. And so, um, the programming of this innovation district comes first. The real estate comes second. Talk about um, the programming within. Um, side the, the the real estate that will be built around the the functions. Yeah, that is so as I again went to visit these other innovation districts, I was always struck by 
you'd have people that would pull you aside and they would say, the one thing I want you to hear me say is it's about the programming. It's not about the real estate. And you hear that enough times and you're like, you nod and you're sure makes sense to me. Um, when you get into it, you, you, you have to really kind of peel that back and understand what they're talking about. And that is when you get your stakeholders together and you understand your regional focus and your regional purpose, you start to understand what the requirements are to create the right um, ways to connect these stakeholders. Um, when you say things like lab space, what kind of lab space? Are you focused on medical innovation? Are you focused on design build? Right, That's a different kind of lab. So you really have to understand what your programming is that you're going to build, and then you look to the space first or after that, and you let the requirements drive that. Um, it's it's hard to do. It's made this project harder. When you look at some of these innovation districts, they're led by a large master developer who comes in with plans to build a million square feet of office space in a 10-year period. And Honestly, Tim, those districts are a little less vibrant and a little less effective when you look at them. It's the ones that are more organic where they've been led by the community, led by the stakeholders. They use existing structures sometimes. You know, there's a blend of things. It's not all about built environment. And so you have to let that programming drive your real estate strategy. Um, and I think that's hard. It's been hard in Kansas City for people to understand. So you've been going through uh, designing a building to house uh, the innovation district, um, BNIMs. Can we restart that? Cyrus picked up on the mics. Okay. Restart that question. Um, what did I say? It was about designing. Okay. So you're in the middle of uh, planning for a new office building on this corridor. Yeah. BNIM uh, and Jay Dunn have been a huge amount of help in thinking through that. Um, could you just take a few seconds? Let's say the building's built. Um, take us from the door up the four floors. What's going on? You've arrived there at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, who's in the building and what's going on? Sure. You, um, hopefully you walk in and there's a lot of activity, um, retail centric activity, you know, like maybe a coffee shop, those types of things where people collect in the morning and aggregate and those types of things. Um, you know, we've talked about having a maker space and some exhibit, you know, uh, we'll call it a uh, showcase space where you can see what's happening. And so those people are kind of getting started and, and you're starting to see the innovations that are occurring and they're very demonstrable to people that might be visiting or people that might be going to work to say, oh, wow, look what they're working on. That's might be a robotics cool. company or a robotics company, uh, you know, the future of, of, of buildings, you know, people that are working on, you know, the future of construction or, you know, transportation um, uh, innovations, those types of things. As you move up, you kind of move through collaboration space and you, you intentionally want that to be because those were the interactions are gonna happen. Those were the collisions are gonna happen. So you might have a, a co-working space. You might have uh, just a, a loungy space where people can kind of come out of their office. A lot of people like to come out of their office and work in open spaces or work in you know, uh, kind of a, an, an open lounge area, that kind of thing. You want open access. Um, Bell Labs did an interesting study years ago. I don't know if you're familiar with how Bell Labs was laid out, but there were these long buildings with these long high hallways, two per floor that ran the length of each building. And they did a study that showed people that worked on the same project that were in different hallways um, or one floor removed 
how much interaction did they have with their peers based on their proximity to their peer groups? And they found that there was an exponential increase in interactions on, you know, common things like problem solving and talking about solutions and those types of things when people were in the same hallway. And when people were on the same floor in one hallway over, they saw an exponential drop in terms of their interactions. I mean, just feet apart, just on the other side of the building. And then one floor down, it was even an ex another exponential decrease. So you want to design these buildings, you want to design these spaces in an innovation community like this to be open and allow for the passing of people in their common day activities. So you might see an open staircase in the middle of the building where people go up and down. They can see each other, very visible, kind of the work that they're doing, those types of things. So the first floor, you're walking in, there's, there's collaborative space, there's meeting space, there's a coffee shop, large, you know, event space. Um, then you might go up to the second floor, there's a, a co-work type concept where smaller companies can plug in and have a presence. And then you also have larger companies that are, that would take, um, a presence in the in in some of these floors as well is that right sure sure you'd see uh, maybe some anchor tenants that are larger technology companies or you know institutions um but you know when you look at lana uh, and what they have in a building called synergy one there they have 20 corporate innovation teams that are in one of these buildings so they're not huge teams they might take up larger footprints because they're working on you know the r d for those companies but they're doing it in the same building so you start to see the collisions between those people and you can start to you know, envision what they're up to and what they're working on. Some of them might be closed spaces because they don't want people to see. So are, are the, who's doing the, the, the programming? The universities are a big part of that, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about that. It's a mix. It's everybody uh, in, in a way, right? You don't want this to be too curated. So the organization that I'm running, which is a, a 501c3, will lead some programming around collaboration and around collisions and trying to create the momentum behind this, but you want third-party accelerators. You want, you know, third-party innovation teams, and and you want others using your space, um, and you want to create those types of collisions. Talk about Keystone. Keystone, um, as I understand it, somebody like Che uh, Dunn may have a problem somewhere with safety, uh, and they can't solve it internally, or they or they don't have time. They'll hand that problem off to you. And then you'll assemble a team or interview a team or curate a team to, to help solve that problem? Or, I mean, that I'm scratching the surface there, but can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, we have. Um, so think of the way the Keystone is bringing programming forward in, in two kind of uh, parallel paths. On one side, we're, we have something called the Standing Committee that is made up of the heads of research and the provosts and academic leads from the universities. And they're really trying to figure out how can they collaborate with each other and collaborate with industry better. So they'll create programs, they'll bring programs into the district. It might be workforce development programs, it might be research. Um, so they're working on the, the higher ed side of the stack. On the corporate side of the stack, you have something that we're calling Keystone Labs, which is just what you described. A corporation as a member brings a problem to the group, a collective, and we use, you know, kind of our theme is design, the, the theme of the Kansas City's, uh, you know, district focus. Um, and so we'll use design thinking and we'll kind of push that idea forward and try to find a solution. Now, one thing that corporations need to do is understand a lot of times the solutions will come from outside their industry or it'll come from the startup ecosystem. And so we'll try to align them and find that. And that's a, you know, corporate accelerator, I think, is what a lot of people, you know, look at that, that option is. What you don't see oftentimes is, 
corporations collaborating with each other to solve these problems, which is, I think, where a lot of larger scale venture opportunities come from. Or those corporations will look across the, the stack, if you will, at the higher ed partners and say, hey, do you have anybody that's working on? So we'll take your construction example, construction safety. Do you guys have anybody that's looking at construction safety or proximity on a construction site or different technologies that we might be able to use to improve safety on a construction site? And they'll tap into the, the higher ed stack to try to find those things. And then you just you organize the meetings, organize the, um, the, exper- the creation of the prototype, organize the experimentation and the testing of those things where you, um, until you can get it to where it's ready to scale That's and go to market. So um, want to talk a little bit about, you know, placemaking initiatives and, you know, with everything that's going on with, with COVID right now, what does that mean for placemaking initiatives like this? Uh, and specifically for Keystone, has that changed anything in your visioning for the district? It has certainly impacted us like it's impacted everyone else. You know, we um, you think you and I were talking before, we announced our board on March 11th. And then, you know, on March 12th, things in Kansas, in Kansas City changed, you know, for, uh, for, for forever, perhaps. So for us, it was kind of the immediate response of where are our stakeholders at? Because this is stakeholder driven. So where are they at? And I would say the city, the entrepreneurs, the community, they were all focused on a higher order of Maslow's pyramid, you know, food, water, you know, shelter kind of things. <laughs> um, so they were busy. So we looked down the kind of stakeholder group, the universities also trying to figure things out. Um, and then the corporations all, you know, the universities and the corporations, which are kind of your majority stakeholders in these innovation districts, they saw a greater need because their industries, their supply chain, everything was disrupted. Everything has been disrupted. So they were, um, a lot of them were proactively looking at this as a chance for an accelerated recovery, which has given us some interesting new tailwinds as a um, as an organization as a concept. Um, I think the challenge that you we saw early on was everybody said, and you've probably heard this. Everybody said, "Well, corporate, you know, c- commercial real estate, you know, office space is dead. Nobody's ever coming back to work in an office." And you hear that sometimes. You'll see it on social media where a CEO or a CIO will announce that his team is forever going to be work from home. and they don't They're usually to- in Silicon Valley where rents are really high and they're using this as an excuse to reduce their, their footprint. And they have not talked to their employees, especially the ones with kids or roommates or that are extroverts or that really find productivity from these interactions that we're talking about. So one of the things we learn, we spend a lot of time talking to our regional and national peers about during this pandemic about what they've seen over time and what they see and how they see this. And it was really interesting. I I would say there's three learnings that we've had. The first one is um, the human condition, human nature is the irresistible force here. You know, you look at historically these pandemics and we have returned to normal after each one of them. And I'll say normal will be different, but we have returned to normal because humans are social beings. Um, And we're not going to do away with that based on a situation like this. Number two is things will change. Spaces will change. Behaviors will change. For us, focus on design, focus on design build. A lot of the industries that are going to change, we can be the catalyst for a lot of those inventions and innovations and solutions. Um, So there's opportunity, right? Quote the great Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, So those those have been, I think, really um, kind of important things. You know what I've found is that um, people – 
I, I find over the last three months, uh, business owners are more transparent about their challenges because they know every, I mean, they know everybody's got challenges, right? Before, you know, if you were having a challenge as a company, you were kind of holding that close to vest. Today, you're sharing that in hopes of learning something from another company. So there's, it seems to be a more openness amongst business owners sharing ideas. And, uh, you know, how do you, do you see that? And do you think that is is one of those fundamental changes that, that might move us forward more quickly to recover, recovery? Absolutely. And I think I look at the higher ed space and the competitive nature of our higher ed institutions and that they're all dealing with this crisis, no matter their size, no matter their focus, no matter what, you know, where they're at, they're all dealing with the, what do we do with students? What do we do with, you know, housing? What do we do, you know, with classrooms? And so there's, it's, they've turned to each other a little bit to collaborate and talk about these challenges. And it's no longer, you know, you're down, we're up, it's, we're all down. So how can we get out of this collectively? See the same thing on the entrepreneurial side. You see the same thing on the business side, for sure. Um, it's almost as if everybody's kind of will this back to life, you know, and we're all doing it at the same time. So I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but um, I think our recovery um, and maybe it's just the Midwest mentality. We haven't been hit as hard as, as the coast. So I think we're more optimistic than some of my friends that are in New York City. But um, I, I don't think it's a V-shaped recovery, but I think uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, in a different way. There's been um, a movement towards this thing called a just and resilient recovery. And I think that is, you know, HRNA has kind of kind of led the charge on this a little bit. They were the group that we worked with on Keystone and they've worked with a lot of these innovation districts. And there's the opportunity to kind of reset, you know, hit the reset button. And, and since systems have been broken and exposed, there's an opportunity to do things better. One of the things that will be true is this will be an entrepreneurial-led recovery because there are so many jobs that won't come back and so many biz industries and, and small businesses and things like that that won't won't just reopen, that it's going to require new business, new venture creation for those um, people to be employed again. So entrepreneurs will kind of lead the way in this recovery. And I, and I think that entrepreneurial spirit is what you're describing. Um, that has to be something pervasive. And I think that's on the coast and in the Midwest that people will see that. You know, um, you're on the board of a robotics company. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about manufacturing uh, coming back to the United States uh, because of all these problems with the supply chain being exposed over the past uh, couple of months. Um, but obviously there's a cost to labor. Um, the future of robotics and automation moving forward, do you see that accelerating beyond what we thought it was going to accelerate uh, at, uh, in 1999, or excuse me, in, 1990, or in 2019 versus today? Absolutely. And uh, um, the key word that you now hear that wasn't in a part of that conversation is resiliency. You know, before it was an economics thing and when do the cost of the robots replace the cost of the humans? And then there was always a dialogue about the future of work, um, talking to a large logistics company that's focused on how many robots are going to replace people. They're looking at increasing their workforce from where it is today because people have to operate, maintain, you know, the robots and so on. But that was always an economic conversation. Now you're talking about the reality that some businesses look at what's happened in like the meatpacking business. 
some of these businesses can be shuttered because of the nature of human workers versus if you had machines, they are COVID resistant. They keep working. And so the supply chain, the manufacturing capabilities, the sooner we get to a resilient type of workforce, the more stable an economy can be built around that. And I think we have to balance that somewhere between what happens to the people, um, but what happens to the economy if we don't? But I certainly think that, that this pandemic, this situation we found ourselves in has accelerated with new meaning that entire conversation. It was all going, I mean, this, uh, this recent convergence of technologies, whether it be artificial intelligence, robotics, um, all those things kind of virtual reality, you know, whatever, all those things are, are, are kind of coming together at the same time. And then you overlay this need for change. Um, what we thought was going to take 10 years is going to, might be cut in half. I mean, the world in five years may be noticeably different. I hate to answer your question with a question or your statement with a question, but did anybody think digital transformation would really take place in 30 days? The right. scale that it did? Exactly. But it has. You know, and I, um, this has nothing to do with it, but I'll close it out with this. Did you watch um, the uh, SpaceX attempted launch yesterday? Parts of it until I found out they weren't launching and then I Just unbelievable. Out. I mean, um, you're looking at what um, – you're looking at – you're watching the future on TV in real time. But at the same time, the future and space finally looks like what we thought it was supposed to look like as represented in 2001 Space Odyssey with everything very stylized and and you know the the astronauts yesterday showed up in Teslas and these these amazingly designed uniforms and then the entire you know inside of the cabin or cabin was not all these engineered you know non-designed type of 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 interior but it was so elegant um I think design is a big part of, of technology and getting people to adopt it. And people want to feel good about it to engage in it. I think Steve Jobs really kind of taught us that. And that's why I think people, you know, are gravitating to certain, um, you know, digital forms of communication, you know, the, the, you know, like Zoom. I mean, it's easy to use. It looks good. People, I don't know what they do, but people actually look better on Zoom than they do in person. So... <laughs> Anyway, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close up today? No, I don't think so, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate, you know, the kind of the support that you've provided. And, and um, I hope we have a chance to come back and talk about, you know, this is, uh, again, this isn't a two or three year project. This is kind of a long term journey with yep. Keystone. And so I hope we have the opportunity to come back and talk about a lot of the successes we see, a lot of the outcomes that we hope to generate for the community and in the future. So thanks Love for having me on. I yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.